Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping on Wednesday this week at 11 a.m. January 31st. As with all news in Washington, things can change fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Alice Olstein of Talking Points Memo. Good morning. And two of my Kaiser Health News colleagues, Julie Appleby. Hello. And Sarah-Jane Tribble. Hello. So it's only Wednesday, but we already have plenty of news. And even before we get to last night's State of the Union, we have some breaking news from this morning. Brenda Fitzgerald, the director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, has resigned. Regular listeners of the podcast might remember that we talked about her numerous financial conflicts of interest back in December. But apparently the last row was a Politico report that broke last night. In fact, that's why Joanne Kennan is not with us today. Alice, this is your extra credit for this week, so I will let you talk about the Politico story. Yes, it became a little less extra this morning and more the the main event um, uh, this morning because uh, it prompted her resignation. And so this report came out just just yesterday and uh, it details how she, the CDC director, bought a fair amount of stock in tobacco companies after she was uh, in the post. Um, and because her job deals with anti-smoking campaigns and general uh, anti-tobacco public health initiatives, this is a clear conflict of interest. And um, the political, the excellent political report details um, with interviews with several different ethics officials and uh, legal experts that even if it wasn't technically illegal and she did ultimately divest a few months later from those stocks, um, it is very ethical dubious and frowned upon. For those who don't remember the early the earlier story, uh, it appeared that when what what the Washington Post had reported is that when she took the post, she already had sort of potential conflicts of interest, and there was some question about how long it was going to take her to divest those. But obviously, none of those were things that she bought after she was in the post. Yes, and now we know that she bought a fair amount from several different tobacco companies after being confirmed. And so. some other companies, too, some other healthcare related companies as well, correct? Yes, healthcare mm-hmm. and sort of f- food and drug related. Yeah. So, right. so apparently she was divested from an awful lot of the portfolio, or she was, excuse me, she was recused from an awful lot of the portfolio that the Centers for Disease Prevention handles. That. And she, she said publicly that uh, anti-tobacco work was one of her priorities, so making this even more... Uh, <laughs> entangled. So HHS Secretary Alex Azar, who was sworn in just this week, already has his first you know, large vacancy to fill, a new head of the CDC. Um, so let us talk about the State of the Union from last night, President Trump's first one, very lengthy. Uh, there was somewhat unexpectedly a fairly lengthy section on prescription drug prices. You might remember this was a big issue for candidate Trump, but not much happened on it last year. Sarah, what did the president promise last night? Well, he promised that he was going to break down drug prices. Now, I, I just want to pause and say that his language last night, and I know we're all talking about um, his his posture and his language and his delivery. His language last night was quite different than we saw a year ago when he was saying the drug companies were murdering people with their prices, right? This was a much more level-headed approach, saying we're going to bring down drug prices. We're going to, um, you know, 
initiate some change there. He said it was a top priority. Uh, I think the quote is, one of my greatest priorities is to reduce the price of prescription drugs. Well, it has been evidently for a year, and we haven't seen any movement. We've seen Democrats who have proposed bills go to the White House and then not get any response afterwards. So it remains to be seen if these are just words or if something will happen from the administration. And uh, and I can go on about the administration because you mentioned Alex Please. Azar. I was just going to if you weren't. <clears throat> it's it's unfortunate that he may have to spend time filling a CDC um Position because he has made lots of waves about prescription drug prices. He's come out and said, men, made mention of the you know the uh, Medicare drug price negotiation possibility. I think that um, the Creates Act last um, November December didn't move, and there's some anticipation that that might move to kind of spur generics and, getting and onto the market. And remind us what that is. So it um, it kind of addresses some details of how drugs are approved and um, particularly risky drugs and. Uh, on one side, the industry says, you know, if you mess with this, then it's going to hinder our intellectual property rights. Um, on the other side, all the advocates are saying, no, no, push this forward because it, what the drug company loopholes are doing is slowing down the access of generic drugs into the market. So this bill kind of addresses that on kind of some administrative levels. And uh, it's very detailed, but uh, all the advocates say it will make a big change. <laughs> Although, and But, I, you know, I imagine Democrats must have looked very skeptically when he launched into this, you know, sort of populist, uh, you know, screed about high prescription drug prices because Alex Azar, of course, is coming. His last job was as a prescription drug executive, um, which the Democrats were, you know, rather hammered him on, even even though many of them ended up voting for him. But, you know, still the, mm-hmm. the idea that, that we have a former very top drug official coming in who, and the president's top priority as he says, in this department is to lower drug prices, would lead some people to wonder. Yeah, I I just don't know that anything's going to be done on a major federal front from a congressional action standpoint on this. I think there's a lot of, um, you know, just walls up around that conversation from a federal position. But from an administrative position, you know, you've got Scott Gottlieb at the FDA. He's really pushing competition. He has already made some moves to change things like, you know, the Orphan Drug Act to reduce some loopholes there. Um, and then you have Alex Azar coming in, and he knows prescription drug pricing from both sides. He knows the administration and how that works. He's coming off of a year where people are very frustrated. He's also coming off of a year where Medicare um, enrollees see their prices going up on prescription drugs, right? So I think there is some some momentum there for um, the administration to make some kind of detailed moves. We wrote a story late last year about um, changes in rebates and DIR fees on prescription drug prices. They could make some moves on that. They had some comment period on that, have not announced anything. Um, there's other things. The 340B discussion could be you know, out there still. I think that actually might get um, a little bit of federal traction with Congress because there is a, a lot going on there. Um, but I, I do think we should just kind of watch where Medicare price negotiation could happen um, underneath the, uh, the, the covers, so to speak. I think there's a lot of detail stuff there that could happen. And, uh, and MedPAC has talked about this. Julie, when we talk about drug prices, we tend to talk about, you know, the, what, what the drug company set. But there's an awful lot of other people involved in this, you know, in, in making drug prices high, aren't right. there? And the drug industry actually has been very good this year in trying to focus the attention on those other things. So insurance companies, for example, set co-payments, and that kind of drives what patients pay. But there's also these things called pharmacy benefit managers, and they negotiate drug prices. They negotiate these rebates. The rebates generally end up 
back in the pockets of either the pharmacy benefit manager or the insurer. The consumer doesn't see those directly. So there's been a lot of focus on that, but none of those things get at sort of the underlying price that the drug comes out at on the market. Um, Rebates touch on that. We just did a story talking about why are drugs for rheumatoid arthritis continuing to go up in cost, even though there's lots of competition. And generally, in economics, you know, you've got more competition and prices come down. doesn't work with brand name drugs. And one of the reasons are, uh, critics say, are these rebates, because it keeps the price higher. The rebates don't go back to the consumer, and it also thwarts But these are rebates that, that do, that, that event, well, of these rebates go to the consumer, but there are other discounts for the consumer that also don't lower that the don't price get of the back drug. To, right, right, right. So, and, and, it, and it means that a lot of the new drugs coming on the market aren't at a lower price point, because if they do come in at lower and the insurer switches to the lower cost drug, that insurer might lose all the rebates from the other drug. So it's very complicated, very tangled. There's a lot going on. The other interesting thing that got shouted out last night in the in the process of talking about prescription drug prices is the right to try yeah. legislation. Yeah. Giving people yeah. access to drugs. To yeah. That's interesting. Alice, what, what's going on with this on the Hill? It's, it's Actually, it's already passed the House, right? It's passed the Senate. Oh, passed the Senate. And it stalled in the House basically because the House was spending all of its time trying to repeal Obamacare and not really taking up other uh, health care initiatives. So the president shouted out this policy, which is to give uh, terminally ill patients access to non-FDA-approved drugs and treatment methods. And um, there's some controversy there about safety, et cetera. Um, well, there's also, I mean, the, the, it's basically, as you know, critics call it, it's the right to, to beg. It's the right to ask the drug companies because there's no, because the FDA, I've, I've done some, some reporting on this. I mean, the, the bar is not really at the FDA. The bar is whether these drug companies want to actually, you know, provide these drugs and not necessarily for free. They don't want them to interfere with their, their you know, clinical trials. And these are mostly people who can't get into clinical trials. Um, so there, there's, there's a whole lot of reasons that the drug companies don't want to give out these drugs. And the right to try legislation doesn't really address that. Right. So it did pass the Senate already. And following the president's speech last night, House Republicans say they will take it up. We'll see if that happens or not. But also the president didn't completely lay out what this policy is. He sort of gave it a shout out for people who already know what it is. The other main thing that that jumped out at me from the speech, obviously, was uh, claiming that the individual mandate is now completely repealed and gone, which is not true. <laughs> um, and that's really striking because that was not an off-the-cuff remark. That was a written into scripted, the speech. teleprompter, White House vetted It's still in speech. effect this year, right? Yes, and it's, exactly. It's, it's next year. That, yeah, that's right. And, you know, we're coming up on tax filing season. so But to, we're coming up on tax filing season for last year. The trick is right. going to be next right. year. Right, right, right. It's, it will have still been in effect. Right. And so... President further sowing confusion on this issue is is not great <laughs> on on the biggest platform he has. And just to jump back to the the popula- populist message that you mentioned earlier, that's kind of the right to try thing, right? Like if you get this picture in your mind of people not being able to access drugs here in the U.S., having to travel outside and they're dying and they're desperate. Um, and I, I don't know how widespread this problem is. The drug companies do actually have these clinical trial programs. They do have these access programs, um, and they do try to, to get people on their drugs. Your point about them not confusing with the clinical trials and hindering the possibility and hurting their drugs market is valid. So I just don't know how much change can happen on this, even if the bill passes. So I, I just think it's a, a very populist thing well, to say. I, more than half the states have already yeah, passed these laws. Right. Yeah. laws. Right. 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 So, so I, it's, I think it's just kind of appealing to a space. Yeah. 
All right. Well, uh, before we move on to the states, which I do want to talk about, um, I want to take a moment to note that the Senate had a big abortion vote this week, which you might have missed because it failed. The Senate needed 60 votes to advance a bill that would have banned abortions after 20 weeks of pregnancy. The bill got 51. And thus it dies for, I think, the third Congress in a row. Um, so why did they even have this vote if it was obvious that it was going to fail? Well, the scuttlebutt I heard is that Lindsey Graham, who was the sponsor of this legislation, wanted to get back in the good graces of... Um, uh, very uh, right-wing voters by sort of putting forward uh, a anti-abortion bill that was essentially doomed to fail because he has angered those same voters <laughs> this year with his pro-immigration reform efforts. And also, I, I imagine, you know, just paying to, you know, the, the president's been sort of trying to be out there pleasing his anti-abortion base at a time when, because they don't have 60 votes in the Senate, they can't actually get very much through Congress. Um, but it did. It, it this, this bill has passed the House multiple times. I think this was the first Senate vote on it. So I guess they decided that they just, that they needed to have a vote, even though they, they knew it was going to fail. Also, I suspect to, to, to push some of the, the more conservative Democrats who are up for election this year, um, who I guess split. Some of them voted for it. Some of them voted against it. Yeah, it was interesting. Um, I, I noticed um, Doug Jones, for instance, voted against it from um, Alabama. From Alabama, uh, new, newly elected, obviously in a pro-Trump state. So um, yes, you're right. There was there was a split among those more vulnerable Democrats, yes. as they're known. All right. Well, now let's talk about the states. Um, not everything happens in health policy uh, in Washington. In fact, these days, most of the things that happen in health policy don't happen in Washington. So, Julie, tell us about Idaho. Well, Idaho is so interesting. Yeah, last week, Idaho. Insurance department folks came out and said they are going to allow insurers to sell plans that don't meet all the rules of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, for example, these plans will be able to tell somebody with a pre-existing condition that they won't cover that condition if that person had not had insurance for the previous 63 days. So there's 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 a way to sort of exclude coverage for pre-existing conditions for some people. They're going to be able to charge older people five times more than younger. And if you remember the ACA, it's a three to one. And there's some other changes. Well, they can charge sick people 50% more than sort of the standard rate. The insurance department says they can do this, that they want to do this because they want to offer lower cost plans because there's a lot of folks who are wrestling with being able to afford an Affordable Care Act plan. Now, the critics immediately jumped up. Um, Nick Bagley uh, tweeted out that this was crazy pants illegal. He's a, a law professor. He's a law professor who has a lot of experience with this. And he said it's crazy pants illegal. And and other folks have similar thoughts, maybe not quite that colorfully. <laughs> but, but, but the concern is, can a state say that it only wants to follow parts of a federal law? And many of the folks I've spoken to expect that this will be challenged in court. We'll see what happens. But in the meantime, um, this plan looks like it's going forward. Idaho is going to have to wait and see if any insurers jump up to do this. And, and they may not. This this could be, there could be a lot of liability for insurers who offer this. For one thing, you know, what if a future administration comes back and says, oh, wait, no, you can't do that. And then there's some pretty stiff penalty fines for not following the ACA. And in a real wonky way, there's another issue. They're, they're going to require these insurers that sell these non-ACA compliant plans to also sell an ACA compliant plan and then pool the risk pool. And insurers don't necessarily think that's a good idea. So we'll see if they actually do come forward. But in the meantime, it raises a lot of really interesting questions. Can a state pick and choose? And 
If the answer is no, it's up to HHS to enforce that. And then the question is, will the Trump administration's Health and Human Services Secretary go to Idaho and say, no, you can't do this? Or will it signal a sort of green light and say, you know what, we're loosening up the rules anyway, go ahead and try this. So it's going to be a very interesting uh, thing to watch on a lot of fronts. Could this have some impact on the the insurers who sell in the ACA market? I mean, there's been, we've, we've been talking the last few weeks and we can talk some more about, you know, short-term insurance plans right, and right. association health plans and all the other things that could sort of skim the healthy people right. out of the market for the ACA compliant plans. This is part of a bigger picture because as both states like Idaho and then the federal government talks about loosening some of the restrictions on selling products to individuals, the question then comes up, is that going to suck the younger and healthier people out? Because remember, not not the Idaho plan. The Idaho plan, they've got to take anybody who applies, but they can they can exclude your pre-existing condition if you haven't had coverage. But some of these other things, short-term policies, association health plans that the federal government is working to loosen the rules around, those could reject people who are sick. So the idea is these new plans will be less expensive in part because they exclude sick people. So what then happens to the people in the ACA market? Premiums are likely to go up. We've already seen premiums go up because of the uncertainty about the fate of the AC, about the cost sharing subsidies, now about the individual mandate. We were just talking about that, you know, the, the penalty goes away. Those have all caused premiums to rise, according to most experts this year, and, and expect to do that next year. So the people who remain in the Affordable Care Act marketplace, many of whom are already having trouble affording premiums, they're going to see their premiums go up if some of these things do come to effect, if Idaho prevails, if if a lot more short-term plans come out. And remember, short-term plans are these policies that right now you can only buy for 90 days. But everybody expects that a proposed rule will be coming out very soon from the Trump administration that allows them to go for a full year, basically. And these are insurance plans, but they, like I said, many of them do exclude people that have health problems. They have lots of other limitations as well. So, so they're likely to be less costly, but they have more limitations. One of the interesting things to watch in the next year, I think, will be the fragmented insurance market with um, the questions going on in um, Utah and Idaho. And it was and um, I just think that that plus the CSRs and I think people out there uh, don't know what's going on with their insurance. Right. Well, and they have no idea when the mandate goes away. (laughs) Alice, last year, Congress spent the entire Obamacare debate basically trying to give states more authority. In the end, they didn't pass anything. And yet... This is sort of what we're seeing is that the states are getting, you know, we're sort of going back to one of the main things that the ACA did was created a federal floor for what had to be provided in insurance. And that seems to be kind of crumbling. I I imagine Congress is just going to sit back and let it happen or... Under the current leadership, that is what I would expect. And it'll be interesting to see what HHS does. Uh, Alex Azar has made it clear he's not a fan of the Affordable Care Act and I I doubt his very first action as confirmed secretary would be to go to bat against a state that is trying to wriggle out of some of the requirements. Also on the subject of states, uh, a little coda to the last couple of weeks' discussions on work requirements for Medicaid recipients. Um, Nick Bagley, who we just mentioned earlier, the University of Michigan uh, law professor and expert on federal administrative process, who's usually right about these things, has opined in a piece in the Journal of the American Medical Association this week that the work requirements 
requirements probably are legal under Medicaid law. That is the opposite of what a lot of experts have been suggesting. Um, since we know there are going to be lawsuits about this, I thought it was worth kicking around a little bit. You know, Nick says that the argument is that in order to be allowed under the waiver authority of Medicaid, it has to further the the um, the purpose of Medicaid, which is to provide health care to people and work requirements don't necessarily provide um, health care to people. But I think other states have argued successfully in the past that or what HHS is arguing is that work itself uh, is connected with people being healthier. Now, whether that's causal or not is obviously a big question. Right. And as, as I pointed out when when I wrote about this for Talking Points memo, one of the main studies HHS has cited to argue that comes out of Britain, where there's universal health care, whether you have a job or not. So I found that pretty striking. And and also, yes, there's, there's a lot of doubt about the causality. Are people uh, healthier and happier, men- better mental and physical health because they are working? Or are they able to work because they have better physical and mental health supported by access to health care? Yeah, so the, definitely this is this is still up in the air, but it might not be as as open and shut case as some advocates are uh, perhaps hoping. Some people who who don't like the work requirements and and think that they will be challenged, and of course other parts of it may be challenged. So that will that will continue on. Um, finally, to change gears one last time, in some unexpected news this week, uh, Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, and J.P. Morgan say they're going to go after employee health costs. What do they think about this, and what do they think that they know that we don't? Julie? You know, we've heard employers over the years um, come up with various ideas to solve the health care cost problem. And there's never a magic bullet, but they often think there is one. So this it could be looked at, I think, as another example of that. But then you've also got to remember, these are really big players. And they've got a lot of um, technological know-how. And I think maybe we're in a little bit different spot now where some large employers maybe could come out with something transformative. Maybe they will pool all their data and they will um, use that somehow to shop around or drive negotiated prices down for certain things. It, it remains to be seen. They've got a, a big marketplace of just among their employees. And they but, have very different. I mean, it's interesting because they have very different pieces of expertise that yeah. could be. I they, they say assume. they're going to start with some kind of technological thing and where it goes from there. But but keep in mind, this is not the first thing we've heard recently. We've got Intermountain Healthcare along with a bunch of other hospitals saying they're going to form a generic drug company, right, and make drugs. And then also on sort of the drug front, um, a year or so ago, about 40 employees including Coca-Cola, American Express, Verizon, they've gotten together. They're going to try to negotiate better deals with these pharmacy benefit managers and do some other things, again, around prescription drug costs. So we are seeing these large groups of employers trying to step up. So I, I think and there's course, not a lot of details, but we'll have to see where this goes. And we have the LeapFrog Group, which has been and around right. since, what, 2000, which is also employers trying to find ways to get higher value, lower cost care. So. Well, and Amazon has announced that it wants to get into the pharmaceutical market, right? Like it's already has some... Um, some contracts with states or licenses with states, I want to say. I was talking to a consultant about this yesterday, I guess it was. And um, what they were kind of, you know, just guessing game kind of because the companies haven't said exactly what they're planning on doing. It sounds like they're actually still trying to get their their ducks in a row and hire people to figure out what they want to do. But Amazon certainly is in a position to do something like a good RX, so to speak. Um, they're in a position to um, be a great distributor of drugs. And it's a matter of who they would contract with, whether it be PBMs or insurers or, or what have you. But if anybody can get drugs to people and uh, do it kind of in a consumer-friendly way, you know, Alexa, send me my Lipitor. Uh, it's not such a bad idea, right? I mean, it could work. 
Uh, We're going to move on to our extra credit segment. That's where each of us recommends a story they read recently that they think everyone else should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these pieces as well as the other ones we talked about today on the Kaiser Health News site, khn.org. Alice, you've already done yours. Julie, what do you have for us this week? This was a fun one that came up actually at my book club the other night. We were just finished reading our book and we were talking about this. And there's an article in The Atlantic by Julie Beck, and the title is Why We Forget Most of the Books We Read. And it was really good. It talks about, yeah, how come I can't remember the plot, you know, four weeks later from this book that I read? And she goes into a lot of things, including the the way we remember things now. We we have this um, recall memory, this ability to spontaneously call up information, as she put it. And if that's less necessary because now you can go Google it, right? You can look stuff up and you don't have to remember stuff. So as long as you remember where to look it up, you can find it. But that's one of the reasons that um, this piece looks at as to why we can't remember things. And another one has to do with binge watching. Apparently, if you binge watch things, you're much less likely to remember them than if you watch one episode a week and you can remember it. But I highly recommend it. It's a good read. And um, it's I not just I can remember what it's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's because we know so much. We just right. forget it, well, that's, it. She does talk about that, too. There's a lot in there. So, well, yeah. It's a very prominent theme in uh, Black Mirror, if anyone watches that show. Outsourcing your memory to technological devices is a huge theme of the show and based in reality, as you're saying. How many phone numbers do you remember anymore, right? Exactly. (laughs) I have no idea what anybody's phone Only my mom's. (laughs) (laughs) What book did you guys read? (laughs) You don't have to say if you don't remember. Sarah. Mine is a lot more serious. I feel bad uh, kind of uh, ending on this note. But uh, it was funny. I was having I was at a dinner uh, last week and somebody mentioned this idea that farm workers were getting uh, kids were getting injured on farms more than in other places. And then lo and behold, there's a story in The New York Times on the 29th um, entitled um, Five Year Old Works Farm Machinery and Injury Follows. And if you read this story, um, and I posted it on my Twitter just because it's heart-wrenching. The The opening scene is a little boy with, you know, um, bleeding, and it describes the injury, and then um, they follow the family. And within there are the cost of health care and how that has really belabored this family and how this boy's care is causing um, all sorts of problems Um because of the cost of it, but also because he can't work on the farm anymore. And it's just, it's a very holistic kind of look at and challenges. And he's five. And, and it mentions other boys who are six and eight and, and elsewhere and interviews people in a, a small town who say, yeah, kids get injured all the time. And it's just a, it's a, a snapshot at a bigger problem with um, health care costs and economic struggles that I think um, just brings a human face to when we talk about drug prices and the cost of health care. People really are uh, coping in so many different ways. Well, mine is also on a serious note. Um, it's a piece by another of my KHN colleagues, Janelle Alicia. It's called No Car, No Care, Medicaid Transportation at Risk in Some States. And it's about another part of these Medicaid waivers that we haven't talked about as much uh, that some states are being granted that allows them to stop covering what's called non-emergency transportation, so transportation that's not in an ambulance. Um, except in some cases, that's really the only way people, particularly disabled people, can get to the health care that they need. Um, it's yet another example of these so-called social determinants of health that often have as big or bigger impact on health than medical care itself. It's really worth a read. Um, So that is it for today. Thank you all for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd also appreciate it if you left a review. That will help other people find us too. Also, as usual, you can email us if you have questions at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org, or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. 
I'm at Alice Olstein. I'm at Julie underscore Appleby. At SJ Tribble. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.